Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. likes to think they live in new and exciting times. If you look at the heart of sort of Jacobinism, uh, Bolshevism, Maoism, even Nazism and, and how the Khmer Rouge operated, all of these movements which ended up being quite ghastly catastrophes, all of them had at their core a belief that a fundamentally new era was emerging than largely that that fundamentally new era was riding on the back of changes in science and technology. These digital technologies are unique and they are, I think, radically different from something like a telegraph line or, or a railway in terms of connecting people. We are participants in this new age of technology in ways we weren't before. That part of the argument can be understood as unprecedented and super scary and something we need to get our, our hands on better. This regime really of mass surveillance and predictive technologies via a massive corpus of behavioural surplus has done some stuff to us even in the space of a decade and a half. I think the digital age could be almost like a, an organ transplant that the body just rejects. The centre of gravity in modern conflict is society. The demos in the Agora are effectively left to their befuddlement. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. In this episode, we'll delve into ways in which the current digital transformation that uh, we're undergoing as a society is reshaping Australia's security, national interest and defence strategy. I'm joined on this uh, small topic by Dr Zach Rogers, who is the research lead at the newly established Jeff Blyke Centre for the US Alliance in Digital Technology, Security and Governance at Flinders University in South Australia. Uh, Zach, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, is a broad question about technology. Mm. Everyone likes to think they live in new and exciting times, and everyone often thinks that the technological changes that they're undergoing as a society are in some way revolutionary or transformational. H.R. McMaster called this the vampire fallacy, this fallacy that won't die, uh, that technology, you know, the technological changes that we're undergoing are in some way going to completely transform society and security. So, I have to ask, as someone whose line of work is looking at digital transformation and, and security, are we really living in unprecedented times, or is it just business as usual when it comes to tech change and security? I think it's a really interesting question, Catherine, and a complicated one. I don't think there's a simple answer to it. In, you're absolutely right that, that the sense of technological vanguardism, I call it, I don't know if that's a word, but I call it technological vanguardism, is, is actually an age-old thing that 
Um, we can go back centuries and even millennia and, and think about how human beings have um, thought about technologies and how uh, various epochs in history, particularly European history, um, in terms of what I've been able to study. But people forever are forever thinking that the next uh, technological change and that the one they're presently living through is unprecedented, um, is, is going to... It, at the heart of a lot of sort of millenarian revolutionary movements throughout the years, and particularly the ones we saw in the 20th century. If you look at the heart of sort of Jacobinism, uh, uh, Bolshevism, Maoism, even Nazism, and, and even sort of something like the, how the Khmer Rouge operated, all of these, all of these movements, which ended up being quite ghastly um, catastrophes, all of them had at their, at their core a belief that a fundamentally new era was was emerging than largely that um, that fundamentally new era was riding on the back of changes in science and technology. So there's nothing new about what we're going through in that sense. This is just another turning of that sort of wheel, if you like. But on the other hand, and I do have this debate with my colleagues quite a lot, there are, there are people who want to discuss the uh, and it's a very respectable argument. People who want to discuss the the technological change we're going through with digital, uh, in terms of um, some of the the things we're more familiar with from the industrial revolution, like uh, the telegraph line, and even all the way back to the printing press, but the telegraph line and railroad, and they want to say that the, these were very disruptive, technology driven changes to society as well, and we eventually. We eventually got hold of that. We eventually got some regulatory and legislative intervention in place. We got industry on board. We got some standards. We got communities and individuals to adjust. So we were able to adapt to them. Now, mind you, the Industrial Revolution produced uh, a Great Depression and two world wars. So that, that's hardly a minor adjustment. And, and we certainly would like to avoid going through all of that again. But the problem I have with that argument is that these digital technologies are unique and they are they are, I think, radically um, different from something like a telegraph line or, or a railway in terms of connecting people. Let me just explain what I, what I mean by that. Um, in, terms of, in terms of, let's talk about the sort of propaganda um, argument. People know that propaganda has been around forever and it's been, you know, whether you're reading a newspaper or a magazine or listening to a radio show or watching the television, you, you know you're being propagandized or just advertised to because there's this relationship between you essentially and the information and that it kind of fits with an older, an older construct that, that belongs under the, under the Western civilizational settlement of, of object and subject. So when I'm, when I'm being advertised to or propagandized to by those old forms of media, I know the schematic of object and subject is in place. There, there's some information coming at me from the, the TV or from the radio or from the newspaper, and I understand that I'm being propagandized, even if it's very, very effective. I, there's still that schematic where, where I'm, I'm the I'm the subject and, and the information is the object. But what's happening with digital, with the proximity, the persistence, and, and the perniciousness of these technologies is that they are incorporating us into that schematic. So that object subject schematic I talked about is breaking down. And that's that's a big, big instability at the heart of the Western civilizational settlement to say something like that's breaking down. So we are, to put it uh, succinctly, we are participants in this new age of technology in ways we weren't before. And that's why I think that part of the argument can be understood as unprecedented and super scary and, and something we need to get our, our hands on better. 
So I agree with you. And I, I want to put a pin actually in the, the idea of technology as revolution and, and come back to come back to the Industrial Revolution and a couple of other previous you know, examples of discontinuity mm. in tech. Um, but I want to challenge you on this idea of, of propaganda um, and participatory propaganda being new. Mm. I mean, I agree with you. I like to say propaganda is maybe the world's second or third oldest profession because <laughs> we as humans are storytelling animals indeed, indeed. and we create narratives and we manipulate in ways um, benign and pernicious mm. in order to exist in a society and, and get people to do what we want them to do. Absolutely. Um, but propaganda has particularly came into its own in the beginning of the 20th century, um, interestingly by democratic countries using it against their own population to make them go to war. Um, but in terms of participatory propaganda, I mean, you had examples in the, I think it was in the 1920s where um, Edward Bernays, the, the self-styled father of propaganda, um, would use um, mass campaigns to get people to smoke. Mm. And one of the most famous examples of that was a march that he orchestrated uh, in New York, um, a women's liberation march, but also um, a women's liberation via smoking march mm. where the women kind of held signs saying smoking is tortures of freedom, mm. um, tortures as in the thing you burn, not torture, <laughs> as in the thing that you do when you don't like people. Um, <laughs> not that I torture people I don't like. No, good. Um, but, <laughs> um, but this idea of, of people being part of their own uh, being being part of their own manipulation, mm. being mm. involved in the story in order to to be persuaded, and I mean that's just one hundred and one in the propagandist's textbook yep. that you involve people, you make them participants in their own deception mm -hmm. in order to achieve your strategic objective. So is that? really that new in the digital world? It's a great point, I think. It's a really great point. And, and indeed, you know, some of the most fundamental insights in the world of teaching and education are that you get students to participate in the mm. teaching. You get them doing things and that's how it actually works. The days of sort of lecturers standing up you know, uh, in front of classes and, and speaking for 50 minutes with a five minutes for questions at the end are, are over. That's not how we well, operate. Well, in, in some people's <laughs> yeah, yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> teaching style. Yeah. Well, the only thing I would say about that example and other examples like that is that you didn't have that thing in your pocket 24 mm -hmm. hours a day. It wasn't nudging you 150 times a day. Uh, the Google Google estimates we have 150 micro moments a day, and they obviously uh, that's where your your phone is just nudging you or poking you and saying you exist, you exist. One of our most fundamental psychological needs is to be recognised by others, um, and so there's a really basic cognitive cognitive uh, instrument being deployed here. Uh, that would be my counter argument that these are, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there's nothing perhaps brand new about participatory propaganda, but the proximity and persistence of these technologies, I would argue is unprecedented. People are going, you know, their phone is the last thing they look at at night and the first thing they look at in the morning. And let me just expand out a little bit on that. I mean, why okay, Why is that necessarily bad? Why is that necessarily something we should worry about? Uh, I think there's a number of openings here, and this is really where the conversation in our country needs to go because we're, we're starting to dig into some of the effects of, of the information, the digital information age, but we're, we're, we're overlooking things as well, and these are a bit of blind spots that I worry about. What does it mean to be fundamentally mediated by digital interface. What does that mean to the fabric of society? And what is it doing not only to children, young people and individuals, mental health, those sorts of issues, but and and, and at the other end you've got 
conversations around around content moderation and 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 extremist um, content and what do we do about those things? What do we do about large monopolies? What about the media environment more broadly? But I want to pull it back to just a more basic question about. And there are there are um, discourses, particularly within neuroscience and neuroscientists like Susan Greenfield has 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 written that we are fundamentally altering some of our cognitive uh, contours here with with this constant attention harvesting. By what she what she really means there is that, and what other authors like Franklin Foer, who wrote a book called World Without Mind, it's one of my favourites. Yeah, it's a great. It's uh, it's, it's a polemic, perhaps, but it's one of yeah, my favourites. Yeah, but interestingly, it it his argument isn't as strong as I want it to be. It, it ends with kind of a, a set of preferences that you and I- I should I, say, I cut you off then for listeners, it's World Without Mind. Yeah, World Fra- Without Mind, Franklin Foer. Other, other, world, other authors yeah. worth looking at, you know, Shoshana Zuboff, The Age of um, Surveillance Capitalism. Jaron Lanny is a real good one here. Um, his 2010 book, um, You Are Not a Gadget. He, he's been writing extensively on some of these, some of the ideology behind that infuses this, this technology. But to get back to what I was saying, the- and the likes of Greenfield and others are raising and, and FOA are raising concerns that the way we mediate our lives so thoroughly now with digital through digital interface is fundamentally shifting some of the the ways we operate. And one of the important ways we operate is as as contemplative and reflective beings. So so a hugely important part of our cognitive environment, our cognitive development, is the ability to actually just. Um, disengage a little bit and to reflect and contemplate and to have a bit of an inner dialogue with yourself. And this is really, this goes back in the Western tradition to to Marcus Aurelius and, and, and the Stoic tradition of, of what's really important about this is that when we when we have 150 micro moments a day and we mediate our, our, our whole cognitive environment through external um, to, through these external objects and these and these platforms that are designed specifically to capture and and capture us in little cognitive loops and attention loops, is there is there a pernicious effect on our on our capacity for internal reflection and contemplation? That was Foer's big fear, and his but his argument was that it kind of it, I find it a little bit weak to say because. Uh, I, I might be an intellectual or I might be a poet or an artist or, or I might be a literary type and I might think that contemplation and reflection are really wonderful and important things. And I don't want to couch this argument. I mean, I do, but I don't want to couch the argument in terms of my preferences. I want to couch the argument in a, in a stronger, I want to ground it in a more strong place. And that where I would go with that is to say that when individuals lose over time the capacity for reflection and contemplation. It's not just something that intellectuals and artists and poets should be worried about. It's actually a problem for our society because the individual who's capable of reflection and internal perception and action is creating a latitude, a a bit of a sort of latency in their internal world so that when the world changes, when the external world changes in ways we, we can't predict and we'll never be able to stop, the individual who has some latency and latitude in their internal environment is able to adjust. They've got a move to make. They can, they can parry and sort of deflect and shift their internal environment in, in order to adapt to the external environment. If, if it's so that we're creating individuals who are less and less 
capable of that, then there's a brittleness forming. Well, you could argue that our entire system and the institutions we've mapped onto our society are based on this idea of deliberation and contemplation. We have a deliberative democracy, for instance, which is something that's often forgotten about the way our our system is set up, which is based on this idea that people need space to think and to evolve their thoughts over time. When the circumstances change, I change with them, that kind of thing. Um, but do you really buy into, I mean, I have some problem with arguments that say that the nature of our technological environment are reshaping the brain or or how we work? Because it does sound a little bit old fuddy-duddy. It sounds Mm -hmm. like a bunch of of parents sitting around a room saying, oh, kids these days. Um, And, you know, kids are surprisingly resilient. People are surprisingly resilient. Humanity and the nature of how we engage with each other is surprisingly resilient and and constant throughout time. Indeed. Um, So I guess that is a problem I have with the, the four argument here that... In some way, we're going to be, you know, corrupted or made or made dumb mm. or or like those little kind of, you know, people sitting in in, in the in those chairs in the Wall-E, the movie where yeah. we're just yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting there being fed a milkshake yeah. and watching TV. Cognitively engineered, um, yeah. But but what I do, what I do worry about, um, is is exactly the thing you said, which is that from the moment the iPhone mm. was invented mm. and this digital world became something that we could no longer turn on and off. We are now constantly enmeshed in it. That in some way that was a step change mm. in the way in which we, I mean, think and interact, but also the way in which security challenges can come and reach directly to the individual. Absolutely. Um, so propaganda is yeah. obviously one. We, we, it's ubiquitous and it's omnipresent. But also this idea that, and and something you've written about as well, that if we are existing in this completely enmeshed online all the time world, then that also changes the way that we engage with institutions. Yeah. And it also brings into play issues of trust. Yes. Uh, in a more, um, perhaps more of a way than it ever did, because societies are built on trust between people, the ability to trust socially, economically, to trust your government, all of these types of things, which is a very human thing. But in a digital world, that mechanism of trust changes a bit. And to make this a little less esoteric, I guess when we're talking about the importance of trust, um, we could think about it in terms of I don't know, like why why London is the the banking centre of the world. It's the banking centre of the world because it has the best legal system. Um, it's got the best system of insurance and um, economic um, in- institutions that allow allow people to trust each other mm. to do business. It became the world's powerhouse. And people like Francis Fukuyama have done studies on tr- societies that are high trust, which tend to be the the big top performing economic. Um, uh, the, the top performing economies and democracies, high trust societies, do well because you've got these kind of norms between people. Yep. But technology seems to be eating away at that. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something we should be worried about? Yeah, I, I agree completely that the the real issue here is not you know it, it does it might get a little bit um, 
scarce of evidence if we try to make this. And I do agree that, that the, the individuals and human beings are, are, are extraordinarily adaptable and, and flexible beings. But I think you can bend human beings, but if you, you, you go a bit too hard, you can break them. And so I worry about that. But indeed, it is our institutions that matter here. And you know, you're absolutely correct that, that, that trust is really the, the, one of the most important threads in that fabric and that social fabric. So if I'm talking about worrying about a brittleness at an individual level, when that, that brittleness translates to the social fabric and we do talk about a decline of trust, then what trust really does is it lowers transaction costs, right? We're able to, and, and all that literature is, is, is entirely relevant here. Um, I think even Hayek thought that the, some of the most important things about, about um, those high trust societies were, were, uh, were the things that, that enabled them to be um, prosperous and to operate the way the way he wanted markets to. But if, Which is pretty cool when you think about it because Hayek's known for being kind of a hard-nosed, capitalist kind of right. leaning guy. Yeah. But he was like, no, this trust thing, this intangible social glue between that's people right. matters. Exactly. So if we're, if we're creating brittleness with these, with these digital interfaces and we are, we are being sold an idea – by some of the biggest tech corporations in the world, that all that can just be done in name of efficiency. And, and the problem is when you delve into some of the ideology and some of the intellectual supply chain from which these tools and methodologies deployed by the big tech companies are, in fact, emerging from, you do discover an ideology that I think most people uh, most people out there would, would think was pretty radical and even borderline extreme. So I'm talking about things like cybernetic totalism, which is what Jaron Lanier wrote about. Okay, can we just pause there and decode cybernetic totalism yeah. for, the, for our listeners? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so Lanier, uh, who wrote that book, You Are Not a Gadget, which was uh, an expansion on this. But in, in 2000, I think it was, he wrote a short piece on edge.org, one of those websites where we're really um, innovative and, and cool ideas are sort of um, exchanged. And he... He pertained to to lay out what he thought as a Silicon Valley insider and a guy who's been around tech for for decades and been at the vanguard of things like virtual technology. He was he was he became a dissenter and he became a bit of a dissenter against what he what he argued was the prevailing um, cultural ideology around those spaces. Now, there's no sense in which this is ubiquitous and, and some sort of monoculture. There's obviously variations and exceptions to the rule. But so his, you're talking about the Silicon Valley culture here, the yeah, ethos that's drive that's right. most of the technologies that we that's use right. to this point. Yeah, not to make too much of a point on the Silicon Valley technology, because I, I am aware there's two sides to Silicon Valley or more sides to Silicon but Valley. But there's some companies that matter more than others Indeed. and have had a bigger role in shaping Indeed. both the tech, but also the assumptions about by the politicians and the strategists about what that tech Precisely. means. Precisely. So lots of discourse and agenda power going on here. And, and you're right. So Lanier thought, he, he came up with the term cybernetic totalism. It obviously comes from the, the concepts of cybernetics, um, most famously associated with Norbert Weiner in, 19, uh, Wiener, I think it's pronounced, in 1950 and, and some of the early um, thinkers around computationalism. But uh, Wiener was interesting because he immediately followed his book on cybernetics with a book about, I think it's called um, The Human Use of Human Beings, where he, he flagged and he worried about the, the way some of these depictions of the way systems work as as systems of information and how that was sort of meshing with a lot of other sciences from biology and then Darwinism and a lot of other things are in the mathematics and complexity theory and network sciences and cybernetics emerges out of that as really a theory of the way command and control happens in systems. 
And he worried that even as he was producing these theories, that he worried that they, they would be abused and sort of uh, manipulated by human beings as, as they normally do to, to, to gain dominance and control over each other. And that's precisely what's happened. But well, that's also the arc of history with technology, right? Exactly, some yeah. Uh, yeah. forward-thinking scientists invent yeah. something. Sometimes that invention gets – I mean, this is also science fiction 101. That invention gets away from them. People do bad things with it. That's right. Um, and, and on and on we go. That's right. That, what, what Lanier thought cybernetic totalism was, he thought there was about six tenets. I don't, I don't quite remember all of them. But they were – that essentially that cybernetics describes reality and that human beings are no more than cybernetic systems. So there's a bit of a and that there was and that bring in sort of a universal darwinism that the cybernetic totalism is the idea that human beings as information systems are just evolving into uh, a new sort of tech human interface mm. or a machine hu- machine human interface and this gets explored in things like transhumanism and posthumanism and some of the craziest stuff in accelerationism. Well transhumanism is interesting right because a lot of people in silicon valley do subscribe to this. That's right. It's an idea about progress. That's right. Um, but it's a... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Uh, as a person who's not, doesn't have a stake in the decision-making processes of Silicon Valley, it's a bit concerning. Well, because absolutely. It seems to be this belief that we can perfect um, humans perfect them by maybe getting rid of their biases and, and humanness by by going to the machine. Yeah. Um, so uh, some argument about efficiency. Mm. So so where I where I draw that back to the things that that, that Foa and, and and Zuboff and others and and, and Rushkoff and a lot of thinkers are worried about is that. You, there's this ideology sitting behind this t- technology that is in, that is infusing it with the idea that existentialism or selfhood or what I spoke before about the, the importance of self-cultivation, mm. um, that that stuff doesn't matter, that it's kind of ephemeral, it's kind of like steam, it's epiphenomenal. They've taken a position in the mind-body debate that's, mm. that's millennia old in philosophy and, and Silicon Valley has taken a position that's by no means a consensus, it by no, by no means has a scientific basis. And they've just taken that position and run with it. And they've said, look, we're going to get more efficient economic systems so we can use these manipulative technologies to produce a more optimized consumer pattern. So you're, you're just, you and I now, we're not people. We're, we're just consumption. We're just units in an information system. We're a bunch of data, for, for, data points that have right. been commodified. That's well, right. it's, it's interesting you mentioned self-reflection. I mean, we are getting a bit uh, more philosophical than the average NatSec pod, <laughs> but this is a, like a, if we're going to bring the philosophy in, it's a Kantian notion, I guess, mm. this kind of idea that we need, that self-improvement mm. and self-learning is, is important and in some way fundamentally human. And 
mm-hmm. on the other side, this this efficiency utilitarian argument mm-hmm. seems to be very much driving a lot of Silicon Valley stuff. It's no surprise to me that movements like effective altruism, mm-hmm. which is this kind of very utilitarian approach to charity that says, you know, you shouldn't give money to the guide dogs because the the slight benefit to someone's life if they have a guide dog, if they're if they're blind, is is not nearly as as, as much bang for your buck as if you gave that money to some type of poverty relief effort yeah, in yeah. Uganda because that bang for the buck will be bigger. Yeah. Um, so we should just put the money wherever we get the most efficiency and optimization. Well, that's just that's just Bentham, Benthian, you know, unit utilitarianism. And it kind of cuts Replay. away though against we have to bring it back to society and trust. It cuts away at this idea of the social nature of humans, our our desire for community, our desire to, for trust, for for uh, for identity, identity, yeah. all of these things, which interestingly are kind of on the resurgence right now, if you look at movements around the world, populism, identity politics. Indeed. Um, and I wonder if that's some type of pushback against, let's call it technological universalism. Yeah, well, I- let's, let's call it technological nihilism. Yeah. And this is what John Gray wrote about in, in 1995, I think one of the most seminal books. If you haven't read Enlightenment's Wake and you're a, you're a liberal or you're a believer in liberal democracy, you need to read it. I think it's unparalleled. What Gray worried about even all the way back then was the dominance of, of what he called technological nihilism. And that's what we're largely talking about here, that that the modern project, the project of modernity, and particularly Western modernity, had essentially undermined itself via its success, and its success being its success in in um, developing and deploying technologies of scale. So, so modernity has this effect of actually undermining itself by producing this type of technology-driven nihilism that Gray worried was going to end up being the sole Western gift to the rest of the world was a type of technological nihilism. Now, it's a little bit difficult to argue with that right now with, with what you see going on around the world with AI and, and, and mass surveillance and population control in places um, where those Western traditions never existed. And so it seems to be there might be cultural settings in which these technologies and tools and methodologies are, are more amenable. See, in the West, it seems like we're having a bit of a, a, bit of a moment of self-reflection. We're saying well, this regime really of mass surveillance and, and predictive technologies via a massive corpus of behavioral surplus has done some stuff to us, even in the space of um, a decade and a half. And yes, it begins with the iPhone, with that, that phone in your pocket all day. And then it begins with, you know, reasons to look at it all day with the platforms like Facebook emerging in 2004. This is so recent and so sudden, it's had, but it's having such a if, – if I'm right and there's a brittleness forming here and we could perhaps um, connect that to some of the, the broader discussions around the erosion of trust and the, the – the, the breakdown of institutions in, in our societies, and we see those manifest in things like the 2016 election interference and what's happening in the United States. So we're having a moment where we we might be reflecting on what these technologies have and are doing to us, and it might not be a, a the story we wanted to hear, and it's not the story we wanted to tell ourselves, but we've got massive, very powerful corporations who now have an enormous amount of discourse and agenda power who are feeding us those ideas that are essentially trying to convince us that, you know what, this breakdown in society, it's it's just a, it's a natural progression to something 
at the vanguard of their vision, as you said, of, of something transhuman and these very, very dubious concepts of progress that are, t- that are tied up in them. And when we connect them back to the 20th century, there's almost every, as I said, millenarian movement in history has a concept of itself as moving beyond history, essentially having to dispense with history. And if you listen to people like um, Ray Kurzweil and Alex Pentland, they, they're, they're unequivocal about we've got real no, no real need for these, what they think are old institutions or old heuristics about selfhood and, and self-cultivation. They just want to ditch them. It's also a little bit dismissive about the quote-unquote common man. And this mm-hmm. seems to be every time you have a technological change, those Indeed. with power, yes. discourse power, agenda power, um, and in technology kind of the building, shaping power of tech, tend to think that they're onto something really good mm. and that the people don't know what's good for them. Well, that's um, right. And, and, yeah. and tend to under, well, mind you though, underestimate the people. So yes. if we map this back onto security and strategy, um, let's think about and and what you were talking about at the beginning that we have all of these these changes in technology, which then result in changes in the social environment and also the security environment. Think about the introduction of air power, for instance. Mm. And if you look at the discourse around air power in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, there was a lot of fear that. Suddenly, because air power gives you the ability to project into an adversary's um, civilian space uh, in order to do, say, something like strategic bombing, that there would be kind of game, set, match before a war was started because the bad guys had come over, bombed mm. the crap out of your city, and the people would be so um, pathetic mm. and you know not resilient yeah. that they wouldn't fight back and war would be over. Now, that very sadly inspired a lot of the the strategies of World War II where we saw mass bombing campaigns by both Germany and the UK against each other. And I, uh, based on the assumption that if we only kind of bombed a bit more, the, we'll persuade the people to, to give it over and, and the war will be over. Mm. It didn't have that effect. In fact, it calcified their resilience and their will to fight. Um, but I can't help but thinking that a lot of that was based on ideas that the elites know what's good and have strategic vision and ideas of progress and and people are just kind of befuddled befuddled and easily confused and easily persuaded mm-hmm. and will just roll over i think it's a great a great point to 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 bring it back to that and that's what i think about and write about a little bit. where where did this idea you know under the western settlement come from that that science and politics has this kind of relationship. Of, I call it a hermetic seal. And it really goes all the way back to Socrates that sets up that dynamic under the Western tradition. And the the demos in the agora are, are effectively left to their befuddlement. And they don't belong in these, situa- in these discussions. Mm. Now, that's not how democracy is supposed to work. You can't have people who do not understand what's happening around them. You cannot have individuals, families and communities who have no idea what the technologies that are being deployed in their lives are really about. Now, you talk about air power and you talk about some of those other industrial age uh, technologies, massive impacts and enormously um, influential. But again, they weren't in your pocket. They weren't in your bedroom. They weren't uh, an assistant listening to your your children's voices mm. to get to gather that behavioural surplus together. So, so well, there's, so there's a strategic imperative, therefore, to actually understand what people think and to involve them in the conversation. Absolutely, but also to democratise this discussion a, and a moral imperative too. Indeed, because of the 
ubiquitous and participatory nature of these technologies. And the effects on people's lives yeah. and they're feeling it. Yeah. Right? You talk to people, it's it's becoming less and less difficult to engage people in these discussions. I've had a few experiences just this year where I've gone out to places and- You do this cool thing, right, where you go to pubs. Oh, I've only done it once. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you should say that this is something you do all the yeah, time. Yeah, I do it all the time, every week. Zach yeah. Rogers in the pub. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, it's people are feeling this and you're right, there is a there is a- I put it this way. I think the digital age could be almost like a, an organ transplant that the body just rejects because people are starting to – and 2019 is a watershed year. I really believe that. Books like Zuboff's and Rushkoff's and a number of others exposing what this tech's really doing and what it's really about. And people are waking up. And well, going, um, we're only talking about the West here too. I mean, right. if you look at what's happening in places like China, mm. um, digital surveillance, um, the Uyghur crisis in Xinjiang mm. and – the public attention that that is now gaining here and mm. extreme as it should be, mm. public concern about essentially a cultural genocide technologically aided, mm-hmm. it's, it's a dramatic wake-up call. And it's not something that people are ignorant about. People are seeing this and they're concerned. That's right. Um, and so I, I think there's a really good argument that, that you're right, that um, that the, the organ transplant might be rejected. The, mm. the tech lash mm. against big yeah. tech in the US, it's prominent in the US election it right now. It could be now. bigger than people think. It could be mm. big. Mm. And that's that's a shame because yeah. in a way, obviously, the digital revolution is extraordinarily beneficial to social benefits. and economic that's outcomes. Right. Yeah. But the but hubris yeah. that you identified has enabled us, particularly in the West, only to see those upsides. Mm. Indeed. And, and overestimate That's them. become a cognitive blind spot yeah. and it's starting to be understood as, as, a, as a national security problem. Yeah. Now, as we, as, we, as we enter that discussion and we enter that debate and the awareness is raised around that, we have to be really – we have to be able to unpick these cognitive blind spots that we have and say, look, we have to have a bigger discussion around how our society and that hermetic seal between science and politics actually mm-hmm. works. Can it work anymore? What Bruno Latour said about that is that – and indeed, what Gray says is that modernity undermined itself. And part of that undermining has been that that hermetic seal between science and politics can't exist anymore if the demos and the agora, the befuddled masses, as, 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 as Socrates would have, would have put it, are so dramatically affected that they can't be left out of this anymore. It's in their lives. It's in their children's lives. And they're not going to put up with this. And that's what democracies are for, is about adjusting and and um, adapting to these things. And ultimately, the nation is moved by the people and the families and the communities that make it up. Politicians have to get better educated. We have to have a whole of society discussion from regulation and legislation down to industry, standards and, and, and civil society, communities and individuals. We have to cross the whole societal stack that is um, affected by these digital changes. And we have to have a discussion about how to build and sustain resilient um, and and forbearance the, the forbearance of our of our open democracies has to continue. We need to work out how to get together and have that discussion properly. So, I mean, that all sounds good and and noble, but you're asking a bit too much. It's always we always have these grand sweeping statements, mm. often in the national security podcast pod room, about the need for a whole of society response, for a national conversation, for politicians to upskill about science. I couldn't agree more that that those things are needed, but are they practical and realistic? And if they're not, what are some of the low hanging fruit that you see in your work where we can kind of move the needle? Mm. And while you're thinking about that, a, a double barrel to that question. 
are these we are kind of securitizing these issues mm. now we're saying it is a matter of national security of national interests and national values which i think it is mm. but you know is that is that the wrong path to go down is is securitizing technology and society bad or is it inevitable and necessary it's inevitable and necessary because of cognitive warfare and the rise of these new paradigms of conflict around uh, political warfare, um, socio-cognitive security, as we put it at JBC, as a number of other uh, population-centric warfare, the, the game's come to us, yeah. okay? It's securitized itself. So this is my my trademark phrase, which is not trademarked at all, <laughs> is that the center of gravity in modern conflict is society. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and indeed, the, the human mind. And Exactly. Even the, what, the, the human mind is in the crosshairs. Now, there's good literature on this for the last 20, 30 more years. That, so you're that, saying I didn't been, invent this concept. Gosh. Well, no, you still trademark the concept. <laughs> um, but the first, part of your, the first part of your question, can you remind me what that was? Yes, well, basically saying your unicorn and kind oh, of rainbow yeah, yeah, ponies yeah. idea of the world is great. Um, <laughs> I've never been accused of that. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we actually? How do we? How All do right. we do it? And how maybe, do we not do rainbow ponies? Well, given most of our listeners are kind of policymakers yep. in the national security world, what can they do in their day jobs? What is the low hanging fruit to address some of these issues to start these national conversations? Because if we just keep saying we need to have these broad sweeping changes, yep. I suspect we won't have them because it's. It's all too hard. Well, look, it starts with the conversation. It starts with narrative. And let's not pretend. Let's here's, Maybe one approach is this. There's, there's a tradition in, in policymaking um, that goes along the lines of the precautionary principle. So what, we, what we'd like to do as, as governments and as policymakers is, and as advisors is to see a problem in advance. We'd like to be able to figure out some of the pros and cons and, and think about the the, the low-cost, high-payoff risks we should take and we should stay away from some of the high-cost um, risks. And that's how we would do it under a precautionary principle. But that's broken down. As, 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 as noble an idea as it is, it's broken down because of the rapidity and the, and, um, the speed of these technological changes. So well, it's, it it's impossible works. to be precautionary anymore. It in works practice. in some domains. Yeah, I mean, indeed. if you're going to dig a mine, yeah, you should yeah. you know, do the environmental the slower impact study stuff. first. You don't dig the mine and see which kind of lizards die. Exactly. You yeah. check out that first. And that's, that's been a really valuable heuristic for policymaking over the centuries. And it's how we've we've civilised a lot of technology, but this is too fast. What we need to develop is a proactionary approach, but proactionary with it with a with a really good dose of realism and a really good dose of of skepticism about that hubris and that technological vanguardism so let's just start that conversation and by a proactionary principle in some way despite our uh, our trashing on silicon valley here mm. that is kind of the way in which technologists do their work there is, is that there is. you put the minimum viable product out there yeah. you test it you get feedback and you iterate and on you go yeah. and that to me seems to be a good way to do business, mm, mm. Um, provided you have the right monitoring and controls. Yep. But it's also, if we're talking about low-hanging fruit, let's yep. be clear here, it's not something governments are going to want to do because it's risky. That's right. When your precautionary principle mm. uh, is is guiding you, mm. you might assess that there's not much risk because yep. you're not doing something until you've got a degree yeah, of confidence it's going advance. to work. Yeah. But on your view, you actually need to lean into risk. That's right. And but then be able to identify those risks and manage them in real time. Yep. Now that's that's a step change for how government operates, particularly democratic governments. It would be a step change, um, but it's it's necessary. We have to think recursively about our actions. What's what what I look at more broadly, and one of the sort of bigger themes of my research is the way 
as I, I spoke before about the Western settlement and the way we set up our ep- epistemological and ontological environments, it's... I'm going to have to stop you there. My apologies. As, <laughs> as the uh, uneducated policy monk <laughs> in the room, epistemological and ontological... Yeah, uh, so epistemology, um, how we make knowledge. Ontology, what's in the world. Right. Right. Those assumptions that, that sit under our Western settlement, they're, they're unstable. They've been destabilised. I like to say the... That the house of modernity has been stormed by these actants, these techno actants. So you're saying we're in a world and we don't really know mm. what to call the things in that world, the That's language, right. the labels, That's the right. categories. Yeah. So let's think recursively and let's think, let's move a little bit slower. I'm afraid that's going to have to be necessary. And that will, that will um, butt up against that technological vanguardism. But what I'm seeing, Catherine, is that's starting to lose a bit of its veneer. And people are starting to understand not only the social impacts, they're starting to understand, I think the, 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 the discourse around big data commerce over the next 12 to 18 months is going to be a little bit, um, shall I, um, there's going to be some negativity there. It's going to be, it's going to be emerging that a lot of this so-called, you know, these, this gold dust that's apparently lurking in the data and these massive corpuses of data held by these corporations and deployed as behavioral predictions and then behavioral modifications, which bring about, supposedly bring about uh, um, a bump in your bottom line if you're a business that's bought this advertising. Through suite. proprietary algorithms. Proprietary that algorithms. No that are black one boxes, can really that see. No one, not or even the, the engineers themselves yeah. in many ways understand them. The discourse around that's going to is already flipping. It's it's turning a little bit sour. So and you heard gonna, it here first. If you're an investor in uh, big well, data, indeed, be analytics, cautious and be sceptical. <laughs> and if you're a government, be yeah. even more sceptical about the stuff that you. Naturally, governments want to be at the vanguard of technology. It's sort of, and a lot of their, unfortunately, it's sort of, we live in a time where a lot of their legitimacy seems, or at least they think their legitimacy seems to depend on it, but I'm not so sure people believe that. Yeah, the legitimacy of government seems to depend these days on efficiency and service delivery. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's the perception. I think because governments are looking towards Apple and Google and saying, wow, you guys are really popular because you have this seamless digital interface Mm, and and it's optimised and efficient. They're a little bit dazzled, a little bit like the deer in the headlights. And that's not going to go well. Uh, There's a good analogy. Um, they're a bit like the, the sycophants at, at, at Jay Gatsby's parties. They, they knew they knew Gatsby was a fake. Everybody knew he was a fake, but everybody was drawn to him but by it's his commitment. And yeah, sexy. by his commitment yeah. to the illusion, a yeah. commitment to the future. Let's not be that. Let's not be the sycophants at Gatsby's parties. Let's be skeptical, and let's use our our understanding of what makes our society strong, which is human relationships. Um, a respect for for institutional traditions that they're there for a reason. Some of it, you know, they're in. They can be inefficient at, at times. Let's not just think of inefficiency in turn. Let's not just think of um, that social noise around institutions that's not always very efficient. Let's not just think of it in terms of inefficiency economically. Let's think of it in terms of how it actually stitches us together. And then let's link that to the, the forbearance and sustainability and, and resilience of our open society, which as far as I know, unless I've missed the memo, is still what we want to be. And let's link that to strategic power. Because ultimately, there is a national security strategic narrative here about our role going forward in this very, very uncertain time. And we want to be, we want to maintain our identity. We want to be who we are. We want to respect our history and our institutions. But we want to be prosperous and we want to be adaptable and flexible as well. That just has to be a balance. We're not getting it right yet. Let's start talking. I mean, low-hanging fruit for me, and I mean, tech companies would hate this, but 
you know, I, I try to use my, my phone less. I try to leave it. You know, if I'm going to have a podcast with Catherine or a coffee with Catherine and have a chat, why is my phone with me? I'm not going to look at it. Leave it in your drawer in your office. Leave, leave it in your car. Just start making little gaps in that behavioral corpus. And what I would say is that that whole paradigm of mass surveillance, grab it all, pretend you can find some gold dust in it, sell that as an advertising space, it's breaking down. It's crashing and burning quickly. And that model's not going to be around much longer. I can almost guarantee it. Let's have the proper conversation about the next phase of that. And let's bring the human back into it. That is a perfect stopping point. I wish we could keep going because I feel we're only just kind of swimming in the very the very shallows of this issue. Um, Zach has a lot of uh, awesome things out there that are written up on this topic. One in particular just that you've written about it with some of your colleagues mm. at the JBC is mm. trust as a strategic resource. That's right. Uh, which I think is another um, for listeners who are looking to delve into this a bit more and, and see more practical ways to implement some of the kind of esoteric things we've been talking about. Um, ways in which countries like Australia, which democracies, can actually start to develop a strategic advantage and a national security narrative around some of these really intractable problems mm. is thinking about things like trust, mm. like putting the human at the centre, mm. which sometimes I think we, we think that these might be weaknesses of the democratic system. Yeah, they're not. Uh, but they're not. They're they the can be our strengths. Yep. Um, so on that, I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm taking away from, from this podcast. For listeners, of course, you can always join the conversation. Um, Apps Policy Forum is our Twitter handle. We've got a Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, uh, and also an email um, if you want to go old school, podcast at policyforum.net. Um, send in questions, thoughts, and reactions to this podcast or ideas you have for future podcasts. We're always looking to expand the conversation out. Um But unfortunately, we'll have to end the in-studio conversation today. Zach, thank you so much for joining me uh, today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks, Catherine. It's been a real pleasure. We'll see you next time on the NatSec pod. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.